Please turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 19. We're in Matthew chapter 19, verses 23 through 26 this morning. Matthew 19, beginning in verse 23. And Jesus said to His disciples, Truly I say to you, only with difficulty will a rich person enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I tell you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. When the disciples heard this, they were greatly astonished, saying, Who then can be saved? But Jesus looked at them and said, With man, this is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. Father, we again come to You today and thank You for Jesus who spoke and speaks like no man ever spoke. For here He tells us that it is more than impossible for rich people to go to heaven. Lord, if I said that, oh, what emails I would get. Thank you that Jesus doesn't care about emails. Thank you that Jesus doesn't care about what hurts our feelings or what we think. But He is the King of heaven and the King of glory who will always tell us the truth no matter what we think. Lord, we pray that we would hear from Jesus this morning. We pray, Holy Spirit, that You would apply Your Word to our hearts. Lord, we pray that we would come to these times with great expectation that You would change us, that we would not leave the same way that we came, but we would be eager to grow in all that Jesus wants us to be, that we would truly understand and believe that You have ordained us to be here this morning, that You have ordained that this be the passage that we study that You've ordained the words that will be spoken, that You are sovereign. Father, we pray that You would help us to hear what the Spirit says to Only Baptist Church, that we would be changed, that You would make us all that You want us to be. Father, we pray that You would guard my mind and heart from saying anything that's unfaithful, untrue, unbiblical, but that I would rightly divide the Word of God this morning and make the text plain. Father, may I preach as a dying man to dying men and women and boys and girls, as one who may never preach again. And may we listen as those who may be sitting in the last sermon we ever hear before we meet You face to face. Prepare us for that day, Lord Jesus. We ask it for Christ's sake. Amen. Amen. Last Sunday, we saw Jesus' encounter with the rich young ruler, and we notice that in every gospel where Jesus speaks with the rich young ruler, He first invites the little children to come to Him. And we notice that there's a great contrast here. The, the helpless, weak, and needy children are a huge contrast with the rich young ruler who's self-sufficient, 
but who is really a poor, deceived slave to his love for possessions and riches. He thinks quite highly of himself, and sadly, we saw that he ends up choosing himself and his riches over Jesus Christ. Unlike the children who come desperately needy, he comes in his self-sufficiency, in his wealth, in his power, and he walks away from God. And I summarized that encounter with the rich young ruler this way, what must I do to have eternal life was his question, and it's one of the most important questions that you could ever ask. Heaven and hell, life and death, eternal bliss, and the eternal suffering depend upon the answer to this most crucial, urgent question. And thankfully, Jesus answers that question for us when the rich young ruler asks him this question. Jesus' answer demands a humble faith and a radical obedience. This humble faith is best illustrated by Phillips Brooks' excellent definition of faith, forsaking all, I take Him. And this radical obedience is found in Mark Dever's words, our generosity is not measured in how much we give, but in how much we keep for ourselves. Jesus calls His disciples to withhold nothing from Him. Faith and obedience to Him demands everything from us. And Jesus demands this same humble faith and radical obedience from all who would ever follow after Him and be His disciples. Jesus teaches that in order to have eternal life, we must do what is impossible with mere men. Repent and believe in Jesus and treasure Him far more than anything else and follow Him in obedience to whatever He calls us to do. Jesus is the good God who demands perfection and provides perfection to all who follow Him and is the treasure of heaven who is so valuable that He's worthy to give up everything in order to gain Him. That was last week. And this week we get a little bit of commentary from Jesus on this encounter with the rich young ruler. And we learn that salvation for the rich and really for everyone is difficult and even impossible apart from God. But God is able to do the impossible and save everyone who repents and believes and follows Jesus. Point number one, we see a difficult salvation. A difficult salvation. Look at verse 23 again. And Jesus said to His disciples, Truly I say to you, only with difficulty will a rich person enter the kingdom of heaven. Jesus tells His disciples it's difficult for a rich person to enter the kingdom of heaven. Notice later on in our passage today, He talks about the kingdom of God, kingdom of heaven, kingdom of God, same same. Uh, uh, realm, same entity, God's reign, heaven. And it's difficult for rich people to enter the kingdom of heaven. Why is that? Why is that? Because people love their money. People love their money. I read in this book this week, there's lots of ways we can uh, take spiritual tests of where people's hearts are, but one of the most telling tests that you can tell a person's heart 
concerning their heart and God is how they spend their money. Because we can come here and get our praise on and, and look really good. But when you go to that checkbook, it's where the rubber meets the road. We love our money. We love stuff. But we're called to love God more. We're tempted to love the security of money. It gives us security. We've got that money in the bank so we can trust in that. I'm going to be taken care of. I'm going to be fed. I'm going to be provided for. I got that big amount in the bank. And we love that security that money gives us. And so we're tempted to love the security of money, but we're called to put our hope in God. We're called to put our hope in God. We're tempted to love the comforts and pleasures of what money can give us. We love comfort. We love pleasure. We love the things money can buy us that we just know will make us happy. And and we have commercials telling us all over the place in our world what we need to be happy. But we're called to find our comfort and pleasure in God. We're called to find our comfort and pleasure in God. We're, we're tempted to love the power that comes with having money. But we're called to display the power of God in our weakness. Many of you are probably familiar with the phrase, follow the money. Follow the money. When you want to find out where the corruption is, where the heart of the matter is, what's going on in government, in politics, in, in, in that celebrity's life, in our own hearts, follow the money. Follow the money. Jesus tells us our hearts will follow our money. Matthew 6, 19-21, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Our hearts follow our money. Hebrews 13.5 Keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have for He has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. God's got you. God will be there for you. God will help you. God will provide for you. God will be your security. God will be your pleasure. God will be your all in all. Therefore, you can be free from the love of money. Beloved of God. Matthew 6.24, no one can serve two masters for either he will hate the one and love the other or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God in money. 1 Timothy 6.10, for the love of money is the root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pains. 1 Timothy 6.17-19, as for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good, to be 
rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. So many warnings in the Scriptures about being in love with with money and, and Jesus gives us another one here. It's hard for rich people to go to heaven. It's hard for them to make it. And so going to heaven is hard for people who are rich. Who are the rich people? (laughs) When I think of rich people, I think of all Americans. We're the rich people. Every one of us are filthy, stinking rich in America. Compared to the vast majority of the rest of the world, Every American is rich. If you make $15,000 a year, fifteen dollars a year, with two adults in your household and two children in your household, you are still richer than 67% of the rest of the world. Fifteen k two adults, two children, you're still more wealthy than 67% of the rest of the world. It is hard for us who live in the United States to enter heaven. That's what Jesus is saying. Point number two, an impossible salvation. It gets even worse or even better, <laughs> depending on how you look at it. An impossible salvation. Look at Matthew 19.24. Again, I tell you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Jesus tells His disciples, it is easier for the impossible to happen. It's not just impossible, it's easier for the impossible to happen than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Actually, I should say it's harder. How am I thinking about this wrong, Michael? It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle, which is impossible. So it's actually harder it's harder for a rich person to get to heaven than for the impossible to happen. Camels are the biggest animal in Palestine, and the eye of the needle is the smallest opening, and Jesus is clearly saying that this is impossible. Jesus is saying that it's more than impossible for the rich to go to heaven. It's more than impossible for the rich to go to heaven. There's a false... How how many of you have heard in a sermon uh, that when Jesus says uh, uh, the eye of a needle, He's talking about a gate in Jerusalem. Anybody heard that in a sermon? Okay. I I just want everybody to know that that is false. That is not true. Uh, But many people do hear that. Um, 
there's a false story that's been told about this verse that there was a gate in Jerusalem called the Needle Gate and camels would have to bend down and unload all their cargo and crawl through the gate. So the application is we must humble ourselves and unload all of our sinful baggage and unload our pride and unload all that hinders us and unload maybe excessive possessions uh, that, that are keeping us from entering heaven. And, um, you know, th- this, this is a case of, of, of the, the right doctrine from the wrong text. I mean, it is true we must humble ourselves. The Bible does teach that. The Bible teaches that we must humble ourselves. Matthew 5, 3 through 5. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Hebrews 12, 1 through 2. Therefore, we are surrounded by so great a kind of witnesses. Let us lay aside every weight and sin that so clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith. First faith. First Peter 5, 5. Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to your elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Yes, the Bible teaches that we should humble ourselves, but that is not what this text is teaching. There was no needle gate in Jerusalem in Jesus' day. There was no needle gate in Jerusalem in Jesus' day. And I love what John MacArthur said about it. He said, the text says the eye of the needle, not a gate called the needle gate. There's no word gate in this text. It says the eye of a needle. Jesus means what He said and said what He means. And He also said Jews weren't stupid. If they brought their camels to a gate that was so small like that, they'd just walk 50 yards to the next gate that they could actually get the camel through. A gate may have been given that name in the Middle Ages because of Jesus' words here in the text, but Jesus is not referring to a gate. Jesus' point is that this is impossible. This is absolutely impossible, and you see that later on in the text where He says salvation is impossible. It's impossible for a camel, a big old camel. Anybody ever ridden a camel? Some people have gone to the Middle East and ridden a camel. These big old animals, and then a wee little tiny needle that you thread with it. You have to, you have to lick the thread to try to get the little neat thread, and you can't even get in. It's so small. So Jesus takes the biggest animal in Palestine and says it's easier for this big old animal to go through this little eye of a needle than for a rich man to go to the kingdom of heaven to be saved. So it's harder than impossible for rich people to be saved. That's what Jesus is saying here. An impossible salvation. Point number three, we see a desperate question. Look at verse 25. When the disciples heard this, they were greatly astonished, saying, Who then can be saved? Jesus' disciples rightly understood what Jesus is saying and wonder, Who can be saved? Can anyone be saved? Jesus' disciples get what He's saying. That this is impossible. And if the rich can't be saved, then who can be saved? There was a kind of prosperity gospel influence on Jesus' disciples. Jesus' disciples may have had a little health, wealth, and prosperity false gospel influencing their minds. They're thinking, this man is young. This man is rich. This man has power and and authority. Surely this is a sign that he's blessed by God. 
This man seems to be very moral and obedient to the law of God. Surely, surely this man is a prime candidate to enter heaven. Tim Keller comments that disciples came from a culture that did not see wealth as evil, but rather as the reward for moral behavior. They accepted the view that if you live a good life, then God will, will reward you with prosperity. Like one of Job's friends. Remember Job's friends? Job was blameless and a righteous man, and, and therefore God chose him to suffer for his glory. And, and, and Job's friends were sure that it was because Job had done something bad and wicked because God blesses with riches those who are faithful. And they said things like Job 15, 20, and 29, talking about the wicked all his days, talking about the unrighteous. All his days, the wicked man suffers torment. He will no longer be rich. That was their view. If you were faithful, if you trusted God, if you were obedient, God's going to bless you with riches. That's not what the Bible teaches. That, that's not what the Bible teaches. That's what these demonic false prosperity teachers teach. That's what T.D. Jakes teaches. That's what Creflo Dollar teaches. That's what Joyce Meyer teaches. That's what Benny Hinn teaches. That's what Joel Osteen teaches. That's what Miles Monroe teaches. And help people fall in love with money and not Jesus. But that's not what the Bible teaches. And let me say this before I continue. There are unconverted Jesus haters who are rich and there are unconverted Jesus haters who are poor. There are converted, Jesus-trusting, Jesus-lovers who are rich and there are converted, Jesus-trusting, Jesus-lovers who are poor. The evidence that you are converted, that you are a converted, Jesus-trusting, Jesus-lover is not the size of your bank account or the fact that you are healthy and wealthy. The evidence that you are a Jesus-lover, truly converted, Jesus-trusting follower of Christ is that you have true faith in the true Jesus. You have the inner witness of the Holy Spirit bearing witness with your spirit that you're a child of God and you bear the fruit of the Spirit in your life. Jesus' words here in Matthew 19 contradict the false prosperity gospel. The false prosperity gospel wrongly teaches that people who trust God and give lots of money to the church will be rich and wealthy. And their false gospel makes it even more difficult for people to go to heaven. <laughs> so just get what Jesus is saying here. It's hard for the rich to go to heaven and you've got all these preachers on TV saying, if you trust God, you'll get rich. So trust God and make it harder for yourself to get to heaven. <laughs> Gloria Copeland says, God knows where the money is and He knows how to get the money to you. Joyce Meyer, don't anybody say amen to any of these. These are all wicked, godless, demonic stuff. Only Satan says amen to this stuff. Joyce Meyer, if you stay in your faith, you are going to get paid. I am now living in my reward. Creflo Dollar, when the people of the world are broke, you are going to have abundance. When the people of the world are sick, you are healed, you are holy. If you take time to tithe and tithe correctly, it's impossible to go to hell. Because if you're doing all of that, tithing will keep you in heaven. It will keep you in the presence of God. No. No, 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 no. No, 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 no. 
What does the Bible say? 2 Corinthians 9, 7, Each man should give what he has decided in his heart to give. Not reluctantly or under compulsion. For God loves a cheerful giver. God loves cheerful givers. He, he loves those people that see the value of the kingdom, the value of Jesus, and out of their joy, from their joy, in their joy, sell everything and buy that field. That's what God's after. People who, who get this, and it becomes a joy to them, and they become cheerful givers. Because they know they can outgive God and whatever they give up, God's going to repay a hundredfold. And we'll get to that next week. Oh, come next week. <laughs> come next week because Peter's going to ask, Jesus, we've left everything for you. And Jesus is going to tell him, you ain't seen nothing yet. Whatever you've given up, I will repay a hundredfold. Beyond your wildest imagination, I'll provide for you. John Piper comments on this text, Jesus said it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of heaven. Why would He say that? It is because riches are such dangerous things. They are not a blessing usually. They are usually a curse. People are cursed with riches. They are destroyed by riches. And here again, let me qualify a little bit. I don't mean it is sinful to make a lot of money. Please hear that. Please hear that. I, I, he, he says, I don't mean it's sinful to make a lot of money. I know of a brother who prayed, God, make me rich. Make me rich because I want to write checks to all the needs that I see. Make me rich. Give me money that I might have more to give away to all these needs I see in the world. And guess what God did? Made his book go to a bestseller, took $2 million one of those months, and he's writing checks like crazy. doesn't take any of the money, but gives it all away. God loves to put money in people's hands like that. Who He knows are going to be faithful and give it away to where it's most needed. So it's not sinful to make a lot of money. I just mean it's sinful to want to keep a lot of money. <laughs> and it's suicidal to want to keep a lot of money. Bigger barns, bigger cars, bigger houses, bigger portfolios, finer clothes, and everything is growing with your income so that your conscience is getting harder and harder because if you're a Christian at this point, your conscience is having to say, it, 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 it is okay. This is okay. This is the Calvary road. This is what it means to deny yourself. This is what it means to follow Jesus. This is what it means to die every day. This is what it means to have my treasure in heaven. And it doesn't. It won't work. So your conscience has to be lacerated in order to keep from killing yourself. And so Jesus says it's hard for a rich man to gain the kingdom of heaven. Paul says those who desire to be rich fall into temptation and pierce themselves with many pains. And along comes a prosperity preacher who says, yes, the Lord really wants you to be rich. You should pursue riches. Following Jesus is the pathway to riches. Riches are the sign of God's blessing. I would just say those are in mutual contradiction with each other. Therefore, this is deadly. And beloved, I, I, I don't hide my love for John Piper. And, and one of the reasons I love him so much is he practices what he preaches. He, he's written uh, uh, multiple books and he could be a millionaire if he took all that money. He does not take one penny of royalties of the money he makes from writing books. He could be a millionaire, but he gives all that money away. 
He shops at thrift stores. I love that man. I want to follow him as he follows Christ. Pray that he finishes well. Because he makes it clear in his life, Jesus is his treasure and not stuff. And we want to follow him as he follows Jesus. So point number three, this desperate question from the disciples, who then can be saved? And they ask that because they got a little prosperity teaching going on in their hearts. Point number four, the God who does the impossible. The God who does the impossible. Look at verse 26. How does Jesus answer the disciples' questions? Who then can be saved? But Jesus looked at them and said, with man, this is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. So again, Jesus is clearly telling you here what the uh, camel going through the eye of a needle means. It's not any of those weird, wacky interpretations. It, it's just what it says. It's literal. <laughs> a literal camel and a little needle, literal eye of a needle, and you can't get through. It's impossible. With man, this is impossible. And notice Jesus, Jesus clarifies now, it's not just the rich, man general. Salvation is impossible with everybody. It's impossible for anybody to go to heaven. Rich, poor, anyone. With man, this is impossible. Jesus teaches that salvation is impossible with men, but possible with God. Why is salvation impossible? Because men are dead spiritually. We're all born dead spiritually. Hating God and unable even to seek God. Ephesians 2.1 God described us as dead in trespasses and sins. Romans 1.30, we're described as haters of God. Romans 3.10-11, none is righteous, no not one. No one seeks God. Jeremiah 13.23, can the Ethiopian change his skin or the leopard its spots? Neither can you do good who are accustomed to doing evil. No person can change their skin color. It's impossible. We can't do that. Le leopards can't get rid of their spots. That's impossible. And God's Word says, neither can you do good who are accustomed to doing evil. This is how we're all born. This is why it's impossible. We are sinners in our thoughts, in our words, in our actions, in our hearts. We're born sinners. Friend, if you're here this morning and, and you are not a Christian, we want you to know this about your condition. We, we, we want you to know what the Bible says, what Jesus says, that, that it is impossible for you to be saved because you're so bad. You are so bad, it's impossible for you to be saved. But God did something that is impossible with you, but possible with God. He did what had to be done to save you. He sent His one and only Son, His Son whom He loves. The, the perfect God-man, Jesus Christ, came into this world. He, he, he took on flesh and dwelt among us. He, he lived and loved and served like no one ever lived, loved and served. He spoke and taught like no one ever taught before in gentleness, in beauty, in power, in boldness. He came loving people like no one ever loved. 
causing blind people to see and causing deaf people to hear and taking people who were leprous and separated from people all their lives and making them whole again and be able to come back into a community. He healed a woman with a flow of blood who'd spent all her money on doctors and was no better. He healed her. He, he even raised dead people from the grave. And then He died on that cross. He died on that cross where He suffered God's curse and wrath and judgment. He, he took our place. We, we deserve hell, but Jesus took our hell. He took our suffering. It's called substitutionary atonement. It's called propitiation. He took God's anger and wrath that we deserve so that we would not face that wrath. He took God's curse that we deserve because of our sin so that we might not go to hell. He took our hell. And He was buried. And, and, and on the third day, He rose from the dead. He conquered sin, death, and hell. He's alive. He ascended into heaven. And He sits at the right hand of God the Father Almighty making intercession for believers now, praying for you that you'll make it, that you'll persevere. And He calls on everyone if you would simply turn from your sins and believe in Him. You know, last week we, we looked at the rich young ruler and what, what, asked you, what, what's that one thing that's keeping you from following Jesus? I listened to a, a, a Keller sermon this week and he said, Jesus demands far more than you ever knew, but He gives you far more than you could ever imagine. And Jesus told this rich young ruler to give up, his, give, up, give up his idol and follow Him. Trust in Him. Repent of your idolatry and love of money and follow Me. Friend, what is that for you today? What is that one thing you must give up to follow Christ? Maybe it's giving up that hope or dream of ever getting married and following Jesus. Maybe it's giving up that dream of, of going to that particular college, young people. And following Jesus. Maybe it's giving up uh, that dream job. Maybe it's giving up the thought of ever having children for those who long for children. Maybe, maybe it's giving up that dream of whatever it is, whatever you think you need to have a fulfilled and satisfying life and trusting that Jesus will provide. He calls us to repent. To repent of anything that we treasure and cherish and love more than Jesus. And turn from sin and follow Christ. You can't earn it. You can't work for it. You can simply receive Jesus. Trust Him. The Bible says, Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. Would you do that today? This is the Gospel of Jesus Christ. This is what God does in doing the impossible. With, with, with man, salvation is impossible. But, but with God, all things are possible. God, God saves sinners. Only God can raise dead men. Only God can grant faith in Him. Only God can cause people to repent. Only God can cause people to love and seek God. God causes dead sinners to be born again. God gives the gift of faith. God draws people by His Holy Spirit. This is beautifully shown in Ezekiel 37 where Ezekiel is shown these dry bones, this, this, this big sea of dry, dead bones that picture the deadness of Israel spiritually. And God asks Ezekiel, can these bones live? And, and Ezekiel gives a good answer. Oh Lord, you know. 
And God says, prophesy to the bones. And He begins to preach to the bones, speak to the bones. And God's Spirit begins to work through His Word and raises the dead bones. That's what God does anytime He causes a sinner to be born again. You're dead bones. And He does the impossible. What's impossible with you, God does. By His Word and Spirit. And raises the dead. It's like Lazarus in the tomb. He's dead. He's been dead four days and he stinketh. And Jesus says, come forth. And Lazarus rises from the dead. That's what God does when He causes someone to be born again. God does the impossible and saves sinners. Philippians 1.29 God is the one who grants faith. Friend, did you know you can't even believe in God unless He grants you the faith to believe? Philippians 1.29 For it has been granted to you. It's been given to you. It's been gifted to you that for the sake of Christ you should not only believe in Him, but also suffer for His sake. It's a gift of God to believe and a gift of God to suffer for Him. 2 Timothy 2.25 Repentance is a gift. You can't even repent unless God gives you that as a gift. God may perhaps grant them repentance leading to a knowledge of the truth. In John 6.44, I I like just just looking at what Jesus says about this. I I sometimes prefer saying I'm a five-point Jesusist. I'm not a five-point Calvinist. I'm a five-point Jesusist. I believe in Jesusism, the five points of Jesus, because he taught all of them. In John 6 44, Jesus said, No one can come to me. No one, no one, rich, poor, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me drags him. Draws him. I think it's a little bit more forceful than that. No one can come to Jesus. You can't come to Jesus unless the Spirit draws you. Doesn't mean draw you kicking and screaming. It means He changes your heart so that you see the, the evil of your sin, the wickedness of your sin, the ugliness of your sin. You see the beauty and glory of Jesus and you come to Him. Some of you may have seen that video of the first time a child tastes ice cream. This is a baby. He's got this ice cream and starts licking it. And when she gets a whiff of what that stuff is, she basically takes that cone and stuffs it in her face. That's what God does. He, he, he shows us the beauty and sweetness of Christ. And we're like, give me that. Give me Him. I'll give you everything. I want Him. Enjoy. I want that ice cream. It's not a burden. It's not a burden to sell everything and follow Him. No, no, no. Joy. Give me that stuff. Ah, I love it. I love Him. No, there, there's no coming There's no coming to Jesus with, oh man, I wish I didn't have to give this up. No, no, I'll give up anything for Him. When you taste and see that the Lord is good, you'll come. Whatever He says, you'll do. And if that, if you do, that means the Father's working in your heart. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws Him. Beloved, if you're a Christian, that means the Father loves you so much, He drew you to Jesus. Isn't that amazing? He chose you before the foundation of the world. When He could have let you go to hell, He could have punished you in hell for the praise of His glorious justice, but He chose to save you and draw you to Jesus forever. That's love. God loves you. 
Do you feel the love of God this morning? What is impossible with man is possible with God, and God has drawn you and saved you. And He predestined you for this. He appointed you for this. He loves you so much that He chose you before the foundation of the world for this. Before you were born or done anything good or bad, God set His love on you in eternity past. As, as Voss said, the, 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 greatest, uh, 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 the greatest evidence that God will never stop loving you is that He never started. He never started loving you. He's always loved you. For I have loved you with an everlasting love, the Bible says. Acts 16, 14. One of those listening was a woman named Lydia, a dealer in purple cloth from the city of Thyatira, who was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to respond to Paul's message. He opened her heart. He'd chosen her. He'd predestined her. He'd appointed her to believe. And so He opened her heart. Beloved, you won't get anything I'm saying to here today unless God opens your heart. Unbeliever, you won't get this today unless God opens your heart. And who does He open the hearts of? The ones He's chosen. The one He's elected. The ones He's predestined. Acts, 16, Acts 13, 48. Acts 13, 48. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whosoever believes shall not perish but have everlasting life. Who will believe? Acts 13, 48 answers. And when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the Word of the Lord. And as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. Friend, if you believe this morning, it means God has appointed you to eternal life. He's appointed you. He loves you. He'll never let you go. This is five-point Jesusism. This is, this is the good news. He will keep you. What is impossible with you is possible with God. And beloved, Jesus teaches in this passage that all things are possible with God. Je Jesus says nothing is impossible for our God. Yes, I know He will not act contrary to His holy character, but nothing is impossible for God. And so the question is this morning, will you trust Him? Will you trust the God of the impossible, the God of the resurrection, the God who raises the dead, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of Sarah? Remember Genesis 18, 14? Brother Rob read it for us this morning. We're in the context of, of old barren Sarah being promised that she would give birth to this child of promise, and she laughs. Beloved, how many things have you laughed at that God can do? And we read in Genesis 18.14, is anything too hard for the Lord? Is anything too hard for the Lord? We read in Jeremiah 32.17, Ah, Lord God, it is You who has made the heavens and the earth by Your great power and by Your outstretched arm. Nothing is too hard for You. And remember the virgin birth, the virgin conception, when Mary was told that she would give birth to the Messiah. And she asked a humble question, how can this be? For I've not known a man. And the angel responds in Luke 1.37, for nothing 
will be impossible with God. Beloved, what seems impossible in your life right now that you need to grow in trusting God for? What seems impossible in your life right now that you need to grow in trusting God for? He will help you. He wants to remind you this morning that nothing is too hard for Him. What situation do you need changed in your life that seems impossible to change? God can change it. Who do you think it would be impossible for God to save? Any, anybody like that in your life? That you think this person is past salvation's hope. There's no way this person can be saved. God does the impossible and God can save that person. God can change that person's life. Don't stop praying. Don't stop sharing the gospel. Don't stop hoping in God who can save them because with man, salvation is impossible, but with God, all things are possible. And beloved, because God loves you so much, He did the impossible by saving you through His Son, Jesus Christ. Remember this, Jesus is the rich young ruler who did do what is impossible with men. Unlike the law-breaking rich young ruler, Jesus did actually truly keep all of God's law from His youth both outwardly and in His mind and heart. Jesus did perfectly obey all the Ten Commandments. Jesus did perfectly and always love the Lord His God with all of His heart, mind, soul, and strength. Jesus did perfectly and always love all His neighbors as Himself. And unlike the rich young ruler who would not give up everything for Jesus, Jesus is the rich young ruler who did give up everything for God and for us. Jesus gave up heaven. Jesus gave up all His riches and became poor so that we might be saved. Jesus gave up unbroken, glorious, all-satisfying fellowship with His heavenly Father when He died on that cross, when He cried out, My God, My God, why hast Thou forsaken Me? Jesus was forsaken by God so that you shall never be forsaken by God. And Jesus rose from that grave. He got up. And beloved, this is the strongest and greatest evidence that you could ever be given that God loves you. God demonstrates His own love for you in this, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Christ died for you. Beloved, re receive that this morning. God loves you. God treasures you. God sings over you. He delights in you. And when you get that, when you get that, in your heart of hearts, that God loves you and treasures you and delights in you and sings over you. That you're a child of the living God. That your Father owns the world. That He will give you everything someday. Someday. <laughs> that frees you from the love of money. It just severs it. It cuts off the love of money. It frees you to be extravagantly and radically generous for the glory of King Jesus. 
And what, what does that look like? What, what, what does that look like? Well, I, I like to, to read other folks to see what that looks like in other people's lives that I myself might be challenged. And, and this brother, at the end of his book, he, he gave some examples of how he tries to live out what he preaches. He didn't just write a book. He fears God. He's full of the Holy Spirit. And he doesn't just want to look at the whole of the Bible and what it says about riches and possessions, but he wants to live it out because he's going to stand before Jesus someday. And so he, he gives some examples of how he seeks to live out what he wrote about. And it was challenging for me. He writes, I was challenged early in my adult life by two different pastors, one in the U.S. and one in the U.K., who each gave 25% of their total income back to the Lord's work and let that fact be known, not in any arrogant way, but simply to encourage others that it could be done. I've become convinced that the concept of a graduated tithe is both biblical and foundational for contemporary Christian stewardship. When we were first married more than 18 years ago, my wife and I committed to begin with a tithe based on the very modest income we had while I was a graduate student, and then to increase that percentage if God increased His uh, annual provisions for us. Over the years, God has blessed us richly, and the percentage of our giving has grown. We were able to give over 30% of our income to our church and parachurch organizations and individuals involved in Christian ministry. This was our fifth consecutive year topping 30% following the principle of the graduated tithe. I do not assume that others making the same amount as our family would in general be able to give as much away. But when the American Christian average of total giving per family is below 3% of per capita income, surely we can do considerably better. So how does one do it? Obviously, by not spending money on things so many Westerners do. Now, he's going to give some practical things. How should we do it? But the main thing about how should we do it is to be absolutely captivated with Jesus Christ. (laughs) To know His love for us. To know what He's done for us. That's the first step. But we've already gone over that. But he's going to give give, give, give some practical ways. How do you do that? Obviously, by not spending money on things so many Westerners do. We must remind ourselves and our children regularly of the lies, half-truths, and pagan values on which is based the advertising that bombards us daily. With relatively minor hardships, our family has freed up considerable funds by doing with less of many items most Westerners routinely take for granted. We have refused to go into debt for anything except property and education, bought cars only that we could afford to pay cash for, bought other goods in bulk at discounts at garage sales and thrift shops. We have not assumed that we need the size or quality of lavish entertainment center items, television, video, stereo, CD players that most of our friends have. We have not heated or cooled our home quite to the extent that most North Americans do or amassed the number or nature of clothes most Westerners seem compelled to accumulate. Even as simple a decision as not eating out with the astonishing frequency of so many of our acquaintances has freed up enormous amounts of money. On four different occasions in well-to-do suburban Denver churches, I've invited large adult Sunday school classes to answer anonymously on note cards the following question. If you knew you would have 20% less income next year, what area of your current budget would be most affected? The most common answer each time was money for eating out. I then raised the question, why not voluntarily cut back without being forced to for the sake of Christian giving? And these are the last words of his book. Give me neither poverty nor riches, which again is a proverb of God's Word, prayed the writer of the proverb. But since most of us already have riches, 
We need to be praying more often and help me to be generous and wise in giving more of those riches away. And so, beloved, I just want to spur you on to again pray about these matters. Go to the Lord. Seek His face. Ask Him what He would have you to do. One of the things that God has impressed upon my heart recently is sometimes when I do spend money, for instance, on going out, I will uh, match that amount to some unreached people group. Uh, like you could give to Mark Zhang, who with his wife is going to one of the most un- unreached nations in the world, Japan. Or you could give to uh, the Smith family in Morocco. Or you could earmark some money and give it to Muhammad Ismail. And so when you eat out, uh, you know, give that same amount to someone in need. That's just one, one, one example. We, we can be creative in how we're zealous for good deeds and, and want to give more away to store up treasures in heaven. Salvation for the rich and everyone is difficult and even impossible apart from God. But God is able to do the impossible and save everyone who repents and believes and follows Jesus. And beloved, I want to, I want to end with my poem. But, but one of the reasons I end with, with poetry is, is that I know that the, 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 the heart has to be changed. The heart has to be captivated with Jesus. We, we've got to be moved to do this, not by feeling guilt from a preacher, but by being captivated by a Savior. That, that's how true change is going to happen. When, when Jesus just captivates your heart like that ice cream, and you're just, oh, yes, I want more Jesus. More Jesus, more treasure in heaven. It is more blessed to give and to receive. I've learned, I've, I've felt it. It's more blessed to give. And we give and give and give and give because it's better and it makes us happier. So we do it in joy. Not walking out, oh, the pastor beat me up about that giving again. Man, my, my tail in is sore. He tanned my hide with that. No, 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 no. Delight in God. Delight in Christ. Joy in Him. See the treasure for what it is and sell everything to get Him. That's why I always end on poetry about Jesus. Because that should be the tenor and the flavor of everything we do. That we're in love with Jesus. We write love poetry about Jesus. We sing about Jesus. We love Him and we want to do whatever He says. Because we love Him. Not to earn salvation. Not to earn heaven. He's given us heaven. We own heaven. We own the earth as His children. He's done that for us in Christ. By faith alone we receive that. But now, having tasted and seen that the Lord is good, we do these things out of joy in God, by the power of the Spirit, because we're in Christ. Jesus does the impossibly hard through His body scarred, so from His presence we won't be barred. It's hard for the rich to enter in. Love of money is a gripping sin. This lust for wealth comes from within. May God show those like Benny Hinn who teach that money's how you win, that on God's Word, they've put a spin. And though they teach this with a grin, they're leading millions into sin. With Christ alone we must begin. He's the poorest who's ever been. No place for Him was in the end. No home to live or rest therein. And on that cross they pierced His skin. He took the wrath of God for sin and rose again so we can win and follow Him who's always been. By faith in Him we enter in. And though our paycheck may be thin, it's Christ is all that makes us grin. A camel can't fit in the eye of the needle if you try. It's impossible, that's why. To man, this saying does apply. You can't be saved on man rely, but God can do all things, no lie. And to all works that He would try, 
impossible does not apply. For on that cross, Jesus did die and rose alive, now seated high to all impossible defy. In Him, to all sins, say goodbye. Behind His back, all sins will fly. If to Him by faith you'll cry, in love to you, He has drawn nigh. He chose you first, made you comply. Opened your heart, He did apply His saving grace. You can't deny with gratitude. We all must cry. You chose us, Father. How and why? We don't deserve this grace supply. To earn His love, we must not try. He freely gives to those who cry. And like a child on Him rely. Just humbly trust, and He thereby will grant you joys far past the sky. Christ Jesus reigns upon His throne. To save the rich is hard He's shown. He does the impossible alone. Makes camels walk through needles groan. He died to save our sin atone, then rose alive and moved that stone. We're justified by faith alone. All sins behind His back are thrown. Leave everything to Him we've flown. Give all for Christ without a groan. With joy we gain. Our minds are blown. For He repays beyond what's known. Eternal life upon His throne. In us His word and joy sown. We'll judge our reign He will condone. By Him we're loved and fully known. He is our treasure. Bone of our bone. Lord, we pray that we would truly treasure You as we should. Father, we thank You that though salvation is impossible with us, we praise You, God, that salvation is possible for You. Lord, we thank You for saving us. We thank You for showing us our sin. We, we thank You, Lord, uh, 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 for drawing us to Yourself. We thank You for predestining us. Lord, thank You for loving us, delighting us. Thank You for making us the apple of Your eye. Thank You for loving us with an everlasting love. Thank You for doing all that needs to be done in Christ, dying for us and rising for us that to free us from the love of money and any other idolatry. So that we, unlike the rich young ruler, we haven't walked away from You sorrowful. Lord, let no one walk away from Jesus sorrowful today. But may we cling to You, Jesus, and trust in You and follow You. And do it in joy. Father, we pray for anyone who does not know the Savior today, that today would be the day that You do the impossible in their hearts, that You save them, that You cause them to be born again, that You grant them faith and repentance. We pray that You would save sinners today. And Father, we ask that You would show us in our lives how we could be more faithful stewards of all that You've given us. As a church, Lord, we have many resources as a church. Lord, help us. Guide us, Holy Spirit. Lead us in how You want us to use those resources faithfully. And Lord, as, as individuals, help us be faithful in, in how we spend our resources for Your glory. God, lead us. For Jesus' sake, Amen.